You are now listening to the June 5th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, a sermon, and prayers after God's own heart. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. Last week, we saw the fall of Judah. With that, we completed the stories of all of the kings. The listeners may recall Saul, David, and Solomon, the first, second, and third kings of Israel, before the country divided into a northern and southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. After the division, there were 39 kings. Starting today, we will do a broad overview of the story of all of the kings from the divided kingdoms. We have been alternating the story of kings between north and south. For this overview, we will review all the kings of each kingdom separately. We will review the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel this week and next week. After Solomon died, the country split. Except the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, the other ten tribes broke away and established the northern kingdom of Israel under the leadership of Jeroboam. After becoming the king of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam faced one big concern. That had to do with worship. His people would have to go down to Jerusalem in the southern kingdom to worship because God's temple was in Jerusalem. To prevent his people from going down to Jerusalem, Jeroboam built high places in Bethel and Dan within the territory of the northern kingdom and set up gold calves so that his people could sacrifice to them and would not have to go down to the southern kingdom to worship. Eventually, what appeared to be a political arrangement brought Israel spiritual corruption. It caused them to depart from God and Israel entered the path of destruction. Jeroboam reigned over Israel for 22 years before he died, and his son Nadab then became the second king. Sadly, Nadab also sinned against God just like his father and made Israel to commit sin. Nadab was then killed by Baasha, the son of Ahijah, from the tribe of Issachar, two years after he became king. At that time, to solidify his power, Baasha killed off all the people in the house of Jeroboam. In that regard, Baasha rendered judgment against the house of Jeroboam for turning against God. However, after he became king, Baasha also did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of Jeroboam. He made idols and worshipped them and made his people to worship them as well. He died after reigning over Israel for 24 years, and his son Ella became the fourth king of Israel. The Bible does not give us a detailed record of Ella. The Bible simply tells us that he was a king who sinned in the sight of God and caused Israel to sin and provoked God to anger. 
Ella was then killed by Zimri two years after he became king. Zimri was a commander of the army when he rose against Ella. Zimri succeeded Ella as the fifth king of Israel. After becoming king, Zimri killed all the men in the house of Baasha, just as Baasha did to the house of Jeroboam, whether they were relatives or friends, not leaving anyone to survive. Such vicious cycles of killing continued king after king. When Zimri became king, the people of Israel were camped in preparation for a war to take over Gibbethon, which had belonged to the Philistines. Amid their preparations, they received the news that Zimri killed Ella and became the king of Israel. They rejected Zimri as their king. Instead, they made Amri their commanding officer at the camp, the king of Israel. Now there were two kings in Israel. Amri, who became king as a popular choice by the people, moved in against Zimri. He besieged Tirzah to overthrow Zimri. In retaliation, Zimri set the palace on fire and proceeded to kill himself. This happened on the seventh day of Zimri's reign, so Zimri sat on the throne of Israel only for seven days. With Zimri out of the way, it looked as if Amri would become the uncontested king of Israel. However, it wasn't that simple. Half of the people of Israel followed Amri, and the other half tried to make Tibni a commander of the army as the next king. As a consequence, fierce battles ensued between the two factions for three years, and eventually Amri emerged on top when he succeeded in killing off Tibni. He became the sixth king of Israel. Once in power, Amri worked on reforms. He purchased the hills in the surrounding land of Samaria from a rich man named Shermer. He built a city to replace Tirzah since Tirzah was burned down by Zimri and was destroyed further from the war. After that, Amri implemented bold changes, both political and economic, to bring prosperity to Israel. For instance, he took advantage of the geographical location of Samaria. Samaria was at the center of the trade routes, so he took control of the flow of goods moving through the area. He made Israel a strong country domestically and internationally with powerful armed forces and economic resources. But how does the Bible assess him? The Bible tells us that Amri did evil in the sight of God and acted more wickedly than all who preceded him. He might have been a successful king in the worldly sense. However, to God, Amri was a king who departed from God's ways by making idols and worshiping them. Amri made his people to sin just the same way the other kings had done. After Amri died, Things did not get better. His son, Ahab, became the seventh king of Israel, and Ahab is well known to us as the king who opposed the prophet Elijah. The Bible tells us that Ahab did more evil than all the other kings that preceded him. The major blame falls on his infamous wife, Jezebel, the wickedest woman in the Bible. Brought together in an arranged marriage, Ahab and Jezebel 
abandoned the God of Israel. Together, they worshipped the idol Jezebel worshipped and built the temple and the altar for Baal in Samaria. Unlike other kings who worshipped idols as a personal choice and didn't really care about who people worshipped, Ahab officially made his people to worship idols in Israel by bringing foreign gods in official sacrifices. Under Ahab, idol worshipping became an officially sanctioned activity. But despite his evil ways, God was gracious to him. God spoke to him through prophets, and when he was in wars, twice he led him to victory both times. God showed Ahab his wonders and allowed him to experience how God was one true God. However, Ahab's heart was hardened and he did not turn to God. Ahab chose the way of his wife, Jezebel, over God. Jezebel was an evil woman to the core. For instance, Jezebel was the culprit behind the killing of an innocent man, Naboth. She worked up a deadly scheme so her husband Ahab could unjustly take possession of the vineyard that Naboth owned and Ahab coveted. For shedding the blood of an innocent man, God declared that he would judge the house of Ahab. However, when he heard the declaration of God's judgment, Ahab tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted and went about despondently. God saw how Ahab repented, so he relented. God said that he would not bring evil in Ahab's days, but would delay the judgment till his son's days. But Ahab's repentance was short-lived. He did not listen to God's word again, and lived in his own greed, and eventually God caused Ahab to die as it had been foretold by the prophet Elijah. After Ahab died, his son Ahaziah became the eighth king of Israel. Ahaziah also did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father and mother. He worshipped Baal and made sacrifices to it. One day, Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber and became bedridden. God spoke to Ahaziah through the prophet Elijah that he would not come down from the bed and would surely die. And it was so. He died two years after he became king. Ahaziah died without any children to bequeath the throne, so his younger brother, Jehoram, who was also called Joram, became the ninth king of Israel. Though not as much as Ahab his father and Jezebel his mother, Jehoram was also living in sin. Despite his sins, God waited for Jehoram to come to his senses and helped him witness the wonders of God. God made a dried-up valley flow with water. God led the war against the Moabites to victory. God allowed Jehoram to experience the thrill of a victory in a war against the Aramean army. Jehoram did not have to engage in the battle himself, but God did his wonders through the prophet Elisha. Despite all that, Jehoram ultimately did not turn back to God and died in his own sin. This concludes today's episode of Story of Kings. We will continue with the overview of kings from the northern kingdom of Israel next time. Have a blessed week.
never failing Let mercy fall on me Everyone needs forgiveness The kindness of a Savior God is mighty to save, He is mighty to save forever, author of salvation, He rose and conquered the grave, Jesus conquered the Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is God Grants All Things. 
I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. One of the unique blessings that you get as a pastor is the opportunity to bless new believers, to to baptize them, but also to sit and listen to their testimony about how they came to faith in Jesus Christ. And I still remember one of the first guys I baptized uh, tells the story about how he had a, a friend who began to go through the scriptures with him and share with him about Jesus Christ. Now, at the time, he, he wasn't living in a way that honored God. Uh, he was living with his, his girlfriend. Uh, they weren't married, weren't, were uh, planning on it someday, but that wasn't really like top on the radar. The other thing uh, that he noted was he was working at a place where they had this honor system, and uh, every day they made fresh soup, and they'd put it out, and they'd leave a can that was really just there for people to, to pay for the soup, to help contribute. And it was completely an honor system kind of deal. And he tells a story about how it was really kind of a dishonor system because nobody ever actually paid. He didn't pay. He didn't feel guilty about it. But he remembers that as he began to have Bible studies and come to know Jesus Christ, there came a distinct day that stuck out in his memory where he came to that can. He got a soup. He looked at it. And for the first time, he began to feel guilty about not leaving money. And as he he went back to Bible study next week, he started telling his friend about like, like, what are you doing, man? Like all of a sudden I'm feeling guilty about stuff I never felt guilty about before. And he said, now I'm starting to really feel like I'm not supposed to be living with my girlfriend because you know what Jesus says about relationships between men and women. And uh, it just seems like you're making life better, harder, not better. So what's going on? He says, brother, I think what's going on is you're becoming a Christian. And with your faith in Christ, you are beginning to have a new sense of right and wrong and morality and obedience. And there's something about goodness that is beautiful to you in such a way that it makes sin seem ugly and wrong. And that story right there that that stuck out in his mind is central to his conversion experience I believe is really the theological sinkhole that we're about to jump into with 2 Peter this morning as we look at those verses 3 and 4 from chapter 1 of 2 Peter, where we are going to see that Jesus promises to make his people like God. It's kind of an amazing thing if you think about it. And that's exactly what we're going to be doing this morning is thinking about this reality. If you're just joining us, let me just catch you up to speed. Uh, Peter One of the apostles wrote 2 Peter. He is a special messenger whom the resurrected and ascended Jesus Christ sent to speak with his authority. He speaks, thus saith the Lord, in a way that others do not. He he does this along with other apostles like Paul and James. He is not equal with Christ. He communicates himself as a slave of Christ in the very first verse of this letter. And Jesus told Peter that he would follow him into death at the end of the Gospel of John. And Peter tells us in this very letter that he anticipates that this death that Jesus promised is drawing near. He tells us that in verse 114, which likely means that this letter was written over 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, just before Nero would likely take Peter and Paul's lives. See, this is an older Peter. He is sobered by the nearness of his death for Christ. And do you see what's on his mind as death is drawing near this this dear old saint? Who is it that he's thinking about? Is he thinking about himself? Well, no, he's, he's actually thinking about other Christians that he loves. He's concerned about them. 
He wants to make sure that as he goes, that, that these Christians are ready for what's coming. He wants to make sure that they make it to the end, that they make it all the way to Christ. So you'll remember that he doesn't introduce his letter geographically like he does in that first Peter. He addresses it to those theologically who have obtained a faith of equal standing with him in Christ. And given that he calls this his second letter, it's likely immediately for those churches in these Roman provinces of Asia Minor that are today modern Turkey. And he's concerned about false teachers and prophets who are going to be coming, speaking, thus saith the Lord, but who are are telling them things that are not true, that are not really revelations from God, that they're man's opinions. So he's warning them that there are some who are going to come and they're going to tell them, you know, Jesus, it's been a while since he's gone and he said he's coming back, but he hasn't coming back. So I don't, I don't know if he's coming back. And since he's not coming back, it doesn't matter how you live morally. You don't need to look different than this corrupt world. And he's warning them that this is not true. See, Peter repetitively through this letter asserts that he hopes to stir them up by way of reminder the true knowledge that will combat the fake news that's coming their way. See, he says, don't forget that Jesus is God. Jesus is coming back. And how you live until then, it matters. Now, the English doesn't show it in this verse 3 as you look there. So this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 3 to 4. And this is our big idea. If you're taking notes, a great thing to write down is this. Jesus empowers Jesus' likeness. Well, notice first that Jesus has granted all Christians all things for life and godliness. Now, verse 3, it opens with this pronoun, his. Now, that could speak of God the Father or Jesus. And I think there's a good argument for each. But I take it here to speak of Jesus because the nearest antecedent is back in verse 2. And if you'll scroll down to verse 16, you'll notice that the power that is spoken of here, there's a power spoken of there, and it speaks of Jesus at his second coming. So Jesus uh, is usually, if you're new to Trinity, a safe answer to most questions, right? Now, sometimes it gets weird. You've got to listen close. But usually it's like, you know, what is this? Jesus. You can't usually go wrong with that, and that's what we're going with this morning. But either way, this speaks of divine power. God's power. Notice what the phrase tells us. At first, it tells us that Jesus has granted all Christians all things for life and godliness. We see that in the first half of this verse. Peter says, if you look with me, His or Jesus' divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, if you're new to Christianity, this might sound strange to you. It speaks of Jesus' divine power. Maybe you thought of Him as kind of like a a prophet, like Muhammad, or guru, like Gandhi. And yet here, there's an ascribing of divine God power to this human Jesus. But the Bible reveals Jesus as very unique from any other human that has ever lived. It describes him as fully God and fully man. In fact, he is the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity, from eternity past. God the Son was always and fully God, but he was not always man. That is only true of Jesus. We are not immortal souls who took on flesh. That is Christ alone. 
See, the eternal Son of God took on flesh in the person of Jesus. Now, what's fascinating here is that we find that Jesus' divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, maybe when you read that, you feel like you need to pick it up, kind of like a, a wrapped present at Christmas or your birthday or maybe Valentine's Day. And if you ever picked it up and just kind of had to rattle it around to figure out what exactly is in that, what exactly is in this idea of life and godliness that's been handed to me? It might not be readily apparent when you just read that phrase. Well, some take it as speaking of this physical life when it speaks of life and godliness. See, God created us. He sustains us. Every breath that you have actually is a gift of the Lord. And so some look at that and say, well, this is speaking of the physical requirements for life that are given to us by God. And that's true. But I believe it's evident in this text that clearly Peter has eternal life in mind. Now, eternal life might sound, that might sound like something that is entirely futuristic, a future reality, something you're waiting for. But New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner, he explains it this way. He says eternal life. Believers have eternal life even now, and yet await the day when such life will be consummated at the eschaton. We have eternal life, and we are awaiting a greater experience of eternal life that is to come when Jesus returns. That's the last day of Jesus' second coming. The day the false teachers and prophets that Peter has warned of are denying. Now you remember in 1 John 5, 11 that John says, and this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. So this life that we experience, this eternal life that comes through faith union with Jesus Christ, the person. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are delivered from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. We have life forever with Him. There's an already not yet consummation that we look to that is full of hope with the eternal life that we have been invited to in Christ. There is an already and not yet consummation of it that we are waiting for. But Jesus has given us everything here for this new eternal life. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and godliness. Now, godliness literally means good worship. And it's mentioned later in this letter in verses 6, 7, and then down in chapter 3, verse 11. This good worship that we owe God. Uh, another commentator, Richard Bauckham, speaking of this word, says it demotes piety towards the gods but also especially in Jewish and Christian usage, the respect for God's will and the moral way of life, which are inseparable from the proper religious attitude to God. See, godliness, it means putting the will of God above your own will. It's trusting God's holy will above your sinful desires. If you really understand the nature of faith, what you are doing in faith is actually trusting that God has a will for your life that is better than your own will, your own wants. God wants better for you than you want for yourself. He wants a future and a hope for a fallen creature. And here, we find that what he wants for us is a moral life. What he reflects is a moral life in us, a good life. Now think about this, godliness. 
this, this thing, this moral life, and, and this eternal life, do you see what he says about these? These are a gift. All these things that pertain to eternal life and what it means to live a moral life, all those things, all that you need, those things have been given to you as a gift. That sounds like a pretty good gift. I would like more of that if I don't have it. All things and everything I need for eternal life and a new way of life, man, I'll take two scoops of that. But, but as you, you read this, I, I believe it should be hugely encouraging. But catch this. I find often that this reality can immobilize us if we're not understanding it rightly. And maybe it convicts us if we do. Maybe you are asking yourself as you read this first part of the verse, if you have all things this morning for a number of reasons. I mean, do I have all things for eternal life and a godly way of life until Jesus gets back? Because I'm looking at my life and I'm looking at eternal life and they're put together. And do do I have all the things? Maybe you're thinking to yourself this morning, I don't feel like I have all things. In fact, you feel like you have less things than other Christians who seem to live effortless, faithful lives without ever sinning or stumbling or failing morally, which, by the the way, is not a thing. There's no Christian who lives for Christ until Jesus gets back that does not stumble, that does not sin, that does not struggle morally. Or maybe you feel not like you've received less things, but you have just received just enough things, like conviction of sin, to make you feel guilty and filthy for your life, but not enough things to help you do what God commands and, and, do what, and not do what he prohibits. You feel powerless. Have you ever felt like fighting sin is like fighting a, a flame-throwing dragon with a toothpick made of wood? We all laugh because we know that feeling, like... Like he who is outside of us is greater than he who is inside of us. And you wonder if you're made of the same stuff and you've gotten the same things. Or maybe you have a sensitive conscience before the Lord and you not only feel like Jesus didn't give you all things or enough things for eternal life and godliness, you feel like he didn't give you any things. Like, do I have any of the things? I feel like I have no hope and hopeless. And Peter's words would have surely corrected false teachers and prophets claiming spiritual life without godliness. Peter says up front, clearly, they go together. But Peter's also giving these Christians encouragement, a life-giving reminder that Jesus grants all things for life and godliness to all Christians. Now, who's this true for, and when did they receive all things? Maybe you're thinking that this is just true of this local church that he spoke to who must have been a band of super-Christians. Or maybe you're thinking that it's speaking of apostles or those who have had a subsequent kind of baptism of the Spirit or those who have received some kind of mystical special revelation and knowledge from God that you have not gotten. But remember that verse 1 tells us that Peter is speaking to every Christian who has received a faith of equal standing. He says this is true of all of us in Christ And maybe in this moment you're thinking, well, that's great. Okay, this is a gift that's for us. But when does it come? Is this just an entirely future event? Notice here again, the language is important. 
Now, for those of you who, again, are are Greek nerds, uh, there is a perfect passive tense for the verb has granted. Now, don't worry about that. Just come in close what this means. What this means, according to Michael Heiser, is the perfect tense is communicating this has granted a completed verbal action that occurred in the past, but which produced a state of being, a result that is in the present, with the emphasis not so much in that past action, but as the present state of affairs resulting from that past action. This is what the focus is. It is a present reality for you. It is something that exists right now. You have all the things. It's not just that they're in the future, it's that they're here and now. Now here's the good news. Peter says, the present state of affairs is that Jesus has granted you all things for life and godliness. This is true of every Christian. Did you hear that? Every Christian's access to these things. Now, the rest of this verse tells us of the past event that created this present state of affairs. It is our conversion. So notice, second, Jesus granted all things to every Christian at conversion. This knowledge in verse 3 refers to an intimate, informed relationship that is the product of conversion to the gospel. Now, do you see it? Conversion, it is literally a, a turning from living from this world that is corrupt and passing away to living for Jesus Christ as King in such a way that you are putting His will above your own. You're submitting yourself to Him, trusting that He knows what's best for you. Now here Peter says those with saving knowledge of Jesus were called by Jesus himself to Jesus himself. Do do you see that? Jesus, through the gospel, is calling people to himself and conversion. Now this is clearly a spiritual reality that is given. It is something that was written decades after the life, death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. This isn't thinking of speaking clearly of Jesus in the person, in his humanity, amongst those who lived in the same time of Jesus, being called by Jesus, but a spiritual calling of Christ that is coming after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. See, the Bible speaks of the calling throughout the scriptures in a couple of different ways. And it's important to think about how calling is being used here. First, you have Jesus, in some places, speaking of a general call. Like if you're reading through Matthew 22, 14. Everybody knows the verse, Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen. See, this call is heard externally. It's heard externally by, by the ears of many, but it does not take root internally in all. It just happens for a few. And, and in that verse, Jesus says, it's the chosen or elect that, that have that word implanted. Sometimes that call is general. And here we see God's election or choosing receives priority. But Peter speaks in this verse of a second effectual calling that effectively impacts all true believers internally in the heart. See, these are those Paul speaks of in Romans 8, 28, where he says, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. All things, those who are called according to his purpose. See, there Paul is explaining that those who are, he goes on to say, foreknown, are also predestined, called, justified, and glorified. 
Now, a popular dictionary of Greek words, I like to use dictionaries when I'm confused about the meaning of a word. BDAG is one of these dictionaries. It, it describes and explains calling this way. In this way, it's used to mean to choose for receipt of a special benefit or experience a call. So this calling is, I'm calling you not just vaguely, but specifically to something. And of course, here we find that they've been called to receive all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, usually the New Testament pictures God the Father is calling us to Jesus. But here Jesus calls us not just to salvation from future wrath, but specifically to his own glory and excellence. See, Jesus' glory here is not just his fame as it is in some places, but the splendor and majesty of his divine being. There is an unparalleled dignity and value and worth in Christ in that he is the eternal son of God. And that is what's being heralded here in this verse. But notice that he also speaks of his excellence. And this word for excellence is, comes from a Greek word that highlights moral virtue. And so it's specifically highlighting the moral beauty and excellence of Jesus Christ. His divine moral excellence. The beauty of Jesus' goodness. I mean, we could think about all kinds of glories that are wrapped up in Christ. But Peter here is focusing in. He says, I want you to note and take note of the moral excellence of Jesus. There is none like him. There is none better than him. He is good in all of his ways. Now, just to put a bow on it, Peter describes becoming a Christian as Jesus calling and enabling you to come to himself in all of his gloriously divine moral excellence and gifting you in turn with everything that you need for eternal life and a moral life. Is that clear? You see it? To Christian brothers and sisters, you might feel like you don't have the same things as other Christians. You might feel like you have just enough things to feel guilty this morning or not enough things to live a godly life. Or maybe even feel like you don't have any things for eternal life and a moral life right now. But Jesus says, hear me, I have given you, Christian, everything that you need, all the things that you need to look more like Jesus. He has given you, don't miss this, himself. Christians partake of the divine nature in part today and fully on the last day. It's verse 4. Now there is an already not yet reality, I believe, nestled here in verse 4. Now, look there again at what it says. It says this, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, here again, the, the language of Second Peter is complicated but the Greek, it actually begins in verse 4 with, through these. Through these he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, which I, I think is pointing back likely to his glory and excellence, or glory and goodness. In other words, I, I think Peter is saying that when someone comes to know Jesus and to put their faith in him, Jesus also grants his precious and very great promises to them. Did, did you know that? When you come to Christ... And when we're inviting you, if you're non-Christian, to come to Christ, we're not asking you to come to Christ because of what we want from you, because we need somebody else to greet or because we need somebody else to give. 
We're inviting you to Christ for what we want for you. When we are partakers of the divine nature, when this is given to us, this doesn't mean that we become the essence of God. That we receive God's Godhood. This is not saying that we in some way have a new ontological reality. Okay, you can check back in. Just like the fact that your nature has changed to God's status. So here what we find is the divine nature is something that is, is much different. It is speaking of God-likeness. And we need to just be clear about this. We do not have the essence of God like the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. He will forever be distinct from us even though we are united to Him. We don't lose the nature and the beauty and the majesty, the uniqueness of Christ. He changes us. Now Mormons teach that if you live a really moral life, you graduate to actual Godhood status. That's heresy. So the divine nature here is really, for them, kind of like in their theology, a carrot on a stick. And what they're saying is, is that those who work hardest will get the carrot, but there's not enough carrots for everybody, right? And it's only through your effort. If you really strive and beat everyone else, if you're doing it really hard, if you work really hard, you can get it. You can get Godhood status. But that's not what is being communicated here. See, here what we find is the call to be partakers of the divine nature connects, I believe, with the larger storyline in the Bible, beginning with the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1. Here we, we find the description of the creation of man. And he was created in the Imago Dei, or the, the image of God. We were created to display God's glory uniquely in all of his creation. And in a way that is distinct from everything else. In fact, in Genesis 1.26, God says, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Now, some recent archaeological discoveries, we found some Egyptian tablets that actually are from about the time of Moses who wrote this. And it actually helped us sort of understand that it's likely that image and likeness mean two different things. Related, but two different things. They're not just saying the same thing, like, in a different way, right? God's image, his likeness, same thing, just being creative. That's not what's happening. It seems instead they're talking about two different kinds of relationships that a king would have with a great God. So the likeness speaks of the worship relationship that a king owed to the God that he served. An image spoke of the relationship he had with others and the way that he would image his God to creation and those outside of himself. So that God literally in the first pages of the Bible, when he says, I created man in my image and after my likeness, it is speaking of the fact that he made you for upward relationship with himself and outward relationship with others. And your creation purpose is that you might truly display the character of God to others, not to make a lie about it, not to live in a way that does not display the truth about who God is. That's exactly the thing that we were created for. Here's the problem. Genesis 3 happened. And in Genesis 3, man sinned against God. Adam sinned against God. And when he sinned, all of humanity fell. Such that we all, every human born after him was born a sinner by nature and by choice. If you speed up to Genesis 6, you see what that means. We are told there that when the Lord looks down, what he sees in Genesis 6, 5 is that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And catch this. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. All people, 
all their thoughts. See, God's image still exists in every human. But after the fall, it is marred by sin. That's why when you look at creation and you look at the news and you look at your neighborhood and you even look in your own home and the way that people mistreat one another, even the best of us, you're thinking to yourself, I know that God created all things good, but all things are not good. So what happened? Sin happened. See, every human is born a sinner by nature and by choice and part of a corrupt world. A corrupt world, that means that it's passing away. It's perishing. It is destined for death and the wrath of God. That's what this world is. That's what all of us were born into. And the reason that it's corrupt is because of the sinful desires, the intentions of the hearts of a broken, fallen humanity. But don't miss this. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are part of a fallen world and you are enslaved to sin or disobedience of God if you have not trusted in Christ. You are still part of a fallen world and enslaved to sin or disobedience against God. Here's the the hard news. The Bible tells us you must live a morally excellent life, a perfect one to meet God's standards. And then it follows up with, but because of Adam's sin, you can't do it by yourself. You can't make yourself godlike apart from faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Peter wants us to see. You need grace straight from Jesus, moment by moment, day by day, to help you be what God made you to be. When you become a Christian, you change your mailing address and your zip code. You're no longer living in the zip code of destruction and corruption and death and damnation and God's wrath. You're living in the household of God. You are living united with Christ, with a future and a hope, with eternal life, And a promise that you will be transformed so that you look like the morally excellent Christ. See, Jesus' life and this world is corruption and death. Obedience to the will of God. It displays God-likeness and immorality. It's not bad to be God-like. It's not bad to be good. While living for sinful desire in this world, it shows that it is full of death and a place that is passing away. It's so much less than what God has created you for. So when you put your faith in Christ, eternal life is your present and your future. You have true knowledge of God and fellowship with Christ in such a way that you begin to look like the morally excellent Christ. You start to question whether or not you should be stealing soup anymore, right? Things change. In fact, if you look at the phrase, the last phrase in verse 4, it speaks of that already not yet reality of salvation when it mentions that we have been saved from the corruption of this world and the enslavement to sinful desires. Yet, yet it requires effort and work that we'll read about next week in verses 5 to 7 to image God, communicating that we are still at war with sinful desires even in Christ, yet We have the promise of the Spirit that Christ is already transforming us. These are all realities that are true. You might think, I I know this war. This is my daily life. Thanks for reminding me. And if that's overwhelming you to this morning, let me remind you of the not yet of what's coming. 
There is a not yet that's coming. These, these strivings will cease. That is the not yet of experiencing the nature, the divine nature that has been promised us. See, Christian, one day you will be just like Jesus. Now, you won't be God, but you will be like God. You will be like Christ. Now, next week, again, we're going to talk about effort. But I think that Peter here particularly is focusing in on the nature of our relationship to Christ is a priority that precedes the efforts that we give towards obeying Jesus and looking like him. See, our sanctification, our transformation, and looking more and more like Jesus, it comes from union with Christ. And the new covenant promises that he sealed for us in his blood and which he has sealed in us with his spirit. This is something that, that we believe even evangelicals believe. Now, see, this invitation of the divine nature is not an invitation to pick yourself up and grind it out yourself, but to look to Christ for what only he can provide. Imagine, imaging God means that we need to do a couple of things. We'll talk about this again throughout these verses, but it means that we need to vivify and mortify. Uh, Vivify means living unto God and obeying what God has commanded, like we see in verses 5 to 7. What's beautiful is we actually have a little girl in our congregation named Vivian. Gentles named their daughter Vivian because they, they wanted to name her after this beautiful doctrine of a vivification, living unto God. Hopefully we have lots of Vivians, even if that's not officially their name in this congregation. See, the life of Christ enlivens us to a life of freedom from sin, and it leads us to mortify sin in our very lives. As John Owen says, do you mortify, do you make it your daily work to mortify sin? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. We need to be about the work of obeying God's word. We need to be about the work of killing sin in our lives. But here's another implication from this text that we find. Not only does looking like Jesus depend on Jesus, not only does imaging God mean vivifying and mortifying, saving grace does not mean that you don't need to obey Jesus. Saving grace doesn't mean that you don't need to obey Jesus. I'm sure you've heard this, this line from your friends. You know, we're all sinners and all. Like kind of a throwaway line, like, oh, I messed up. Like, we're all sinners and all. It's not a big deal. And yet, so underestimates a number of things. When you say, like, you know, we're all sinners and all, like, you're saying a number of things. You're saying, one, like, you, you underestimate the value and worth of the precious blood of Jesus that was shed for that sin, the weight and the majesty of that. You, you underestimate the weight and the majesty of a holy God being willing to initiate forgiveness with sinners. It means also that you underestimate the goodness that God wants for you. There's a, an underlying way in which you're just saying, like, I just really don't trust God in this sin. That he doesn't really want better for me than what I want for myself. That he doesn't really know what's best for me. I know better than he knows. It's a sense in which you in that moment are trying to be like God, but God over God. So there's a real sense when we come to Jesus, we need to understand that saving grace does not mean that we don't need to obey Jesus. We understand that saving grace actually does something glorious in us. It helps us and enables us and empowers us and transforms us so that we can actually look like Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. In church, we want to make sure that we are people who have space for grace, for people who are coming from all kinds of backgrounds spiritually. 
And yet at the same time, intentionally putting sin to death. You know, I'm usually more patient with one degree processes with myself than I am with others. Especially when that one degree of progress that you require requires another degree of patience on my part. But God is transforming each of us and all of us from one degree of glory to the next. We are not perfectionists like John Wesley taught. We don't believe that any of us has gotten so much like Jesus in theosis that we have arrived to another spiritual state absolutely free from sinful desire because God is at work. And he's at work until Jesus gets back. And Jesus is coming back and he will get back and he will bring about the completion of the work that he began in us. And that's the day that we long for. See, Christian, one day you will be just like Jesus. I love what John says in 1 John 3, 2-3. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now and we will be, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We will see Jesus. We will be like Jesus. And here's the, the, the main point from the New Testament. It is that Jesus is the very image of the invisible God. He is the one who is the exact imprint of his nature. He is the one who is altogether glorious. And he is the one whom we want to look like. So brothers and sisters, we're going through these verses over the next couple of weeks. I know there's going to be some time when you're feeling, man, like these virtues, I feel like these are a list of things that I am not. And I want us to come back to the well of who we are in Christ and the divine nature that we've been called to and the resources that have been given to us. We've been given all things in him. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come before you praising you, praising you that you have given us your son. Father, praising you that Jesus has called us to himself, that he has given us all things for eternal life, and a godly way of life. Father, we ask that our congregation would be a people who are known for for loving and basking in your moral excellence, and yet at the same time defined by a humility that knows that we are sinners, we are not perfect, we have grace towards other sinners, and yet we are also seeking to put sin to death. Lord, help us to do both of those things to the glory of your name we pray. Amen. Jesus, he's everything to me. He's the fairest of ten thousand to my soul. The lily of the valley, in him alone I see. All I need to cleanse and make me fully whole. In sorrow he's my comfort, in trouble he's my stay. He tells me every care on him to roll. He's a lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of ten thousand to my soul. Oh, he all my griefs has taken, and all my sorrows borne. In temptation he's my strong and mighty tower. I have all for him forsaken, and all my idols torn. From my heart, and now he keeps me by his power. Though all the world forsake me, and Satan tempt me sore, through Jesus I shall safely reach the goal. 
He's a lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He's a fairest of ten thousand to my soul. He will never, never leave me, nor yet forsake me here, while I live by faith and do his blessed will. A wall of fire about me, I've nothing now to fear, with his manna he my hungry soul shall fill. Then sweeping up to glory, to see his blessed face, where rivers of delight shall ever roll. He's a lily of the valley, the bright and morning star, he's a fairest of ten thousand to my soul. listen to Heart and Soul Gospel Broadcasts through apps or podcasts on your smartphone. If you're an iPhone user, go to the App Store and download Heart and Soul. If you possess an Android phone, you can download it in the Play Store in the same way. Podcast users can download by searching Heart and Soul Broadcasts in the search box. It also provides you with distinct broadcasts for children's program. By searching Heart and Soul Kids in the podcast, you can directly log on to the broadcast for children's program. For more information, please call and tag the office at 602-866-8999. The following program is called Prayers After God's Own Heart. Hello everyone, it's Terry from Prayers After God's Own Heart. When I was young, I rarely said I love you to my parents. Likewise, in my early childhood, my parents rarely said I love you to me. My father, who was reserved, now tells me he loves me as we end our phone calls and he often texts me I love you. When I was young, my mom didn't really express her love to me, but now she occasionally says I love you to me. As I see my parents become more free in expressing their love, I began to think that today's society has changed into a culture that expresses love more than before. It seems like the culture of expressing more to each other and letting others know you love them has increased. Of course, it's important to express affection in a loving relationship. However, I'm a little afraid that our culture places too much emphasis on love. What I'm trying to say is that of all the many characteristics of God, our culture these days places too much emphasis solely on His love. I'm afraid we won't see the other characteristics of God and may even misunderstand Him. To be more specific, young people these days emphasize the love of God. They may say, how can a loving God send people made in His image to hell? Or, how can a loving God continue to love us no matter how sinful we are? These statements may seem rational, but there are some strange thoughts behind them. There is something Christians must remember. In order for the gospel to be good news, we must first understand the bad news. And that is, God of love is also God of justice at the same time. If we only emphasize that God loves us just as we are, then we might have the misunderstanding that it's okay to live just the way we are. As I mentioned, this is a false sense of value that today's younger generation possess. It's true that God loved us as sinners, and sent his son to die on our behalf. However, we were bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, God's only son. 
God will not just let us continue to live like sinners. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 21 through 24 says, That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. It says a person who is saved through Jesus must put off his old self and be made new. The biblical term for putting off your old self and be made new is called repentance. Repentance means changing direction. It means turning back from the old path and walking the new path. Repentance is one of the most important factors in Christian faith. It's an essential component that can't be left out. Jesus tells us how valuable repentance is in heaven in Luke chapter 15, verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. When a sinner realizes his sin and repents, there is great rejoicing in heaven. If so, a sinner's prayer of repentance should be a prayer after God's own heart, right? God will be pleased with the sinner's prayer when he realizes sin, confesses it, and goes before God to ask for help. There is a prayer of repentance that we all know well. After David committed adultery with Bathsheba, in an effort to hide his deeds, he devised a plan to have her husband and David's loyal general Uriah killed by enemy hands. King David thought nobody would find out and thought he had the authority to do such a thing as the king of a nation. After King David heard Prophet Nathan's rebuke, he realized his sin. Then he turned back to God in repentance. There are two Psalms that contain his feelings. They are Psalm chapter 32 and 51. First, we'll look at Psalm chapter 51, which expresses David's feeling as he realized his sin. We'll read Psalm chapter 51 verses 1 through 5. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David confessed that he was a sinful, evil person. David confessed that he was sinful before birth and therefore always lived in sin. He acknowledged that it was fair for him to receive God's word and judgment. One attribute of sin is a failure to admit one's sin, but rather blaming others as the cause of our sin. We saw this in the beginning when sin entered the world. Adam made an excuse by saying he sinned because of the woman God made. Eve made an excuse by saying she sinned because of the serpent's temptation. A person who sincerely realizes his sin and repents acknowledges his sin. Since he is powerless to resolve the problem of sin, he asks God to help him. David felt this way, so he asked God to wash away all his iniquity and cleanse him from his sin. Such a confession continues in verses 7 and 9. In verse 10, he asked God to create in him a pure heart 
and renew a steadfast spirit within him. In David's prayer, he desperately wanted to be freed from his sin and made a resolution to do so. That is a prayer after God's own heart. In Psalm chapter 32, David confessed, Blessed is the one whose sins are covered, and blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. In Psalm chapter 32 verse 5, he confessed how he went from one suffering in sin to now being blessed. I will read the verse to you. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. When he laid down his sin without covering it up, he experienced God's forgiveness. Sin troubles our soul and it makes us grow farther from God. It's not God who is leaving us, but our sinful nature leads us farther from the presence of holy God. It's like when Adam and Eve avoided seeing the Lord's face and hid. However, God is love. That is why we as sinners acknowledge our sins and become distressed because of our sins. Then we must come before God and seek help. That is a prayer after God's own heart. God didn't say David was a man after his own heart because David lived without sin. David sinned like the others, but he turned from his sin and went before God. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Are you giving a prayer of repentance that is after God's own heart? Are you acknowledging your sin and distressed over the sin? Are you going before God and asking Him to solve that sin problem? If you are, then as the Word promises, God will cleanse us from all sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. I hope, like David, we can give prayers after God's own heart. This concludes today's episode of Prayers After God's Own Heart. Out of my bondage, sorrow and night, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come. Into thy freedom, gladness and light, Jesus, I come to thee. Out of my sickness, into thy health, out of my wanting and into thy wealth. Out of my sin and into thyself, Jesus, I come to thee. Out of my shameful failure and loss, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come. Into the glorious gain of thy cross, Jesus, I come to thee. Out of her sorrows, into thy balm, out of thy storms, and into thy calm, out of distress, into jubilant song, Jesus, I come to thee.
and pride. Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come into Thy blessed will to abide. Jesus, I come to Thee. Out of myself to dwell in Thy love. Out of despair into raptures above. Upward forever on wings like a dove. Jesus, I come to. I come, Jesus, I come into the joy and light of Thy home, Jesus, I come to Thee. Out of the depths of ruin untold, into the peace of Thy sheltering fold, ever Thy glorious face to be. I come to Thee, Jesus, I come to We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.